Welcome to the Liturgist Podcast, everybody. My name is Michael Gunger. One of my favorite spiritual teachers was a woman named Sally Kempton. Her writing, her courses, her energy, her beautiful love that just radiated through her uh, was radically transformational for me, particularly in relationship to the divine feminine and a lot of that awakening within my body and heart and mind. Um, so I was always so grateful for her teachings. She actually passed uh, this year in July. But before that, I was really fortunate to be able to sit down with her over Zoom um, this last year and have a conversation about some of the things I was most curious about in her perspective and in her teachings um, about the Divine Feminine, about Kundalini, about the awakening process and how all of it relates to uh, Christianity in the West. And so we got to have a lot of, we got to talk about kind of a broad swath of things in this conversation. Really grateful to have this conversation with such a wise, powerful being. I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Let's jump into it. Here's Sally Kempton. So, are you in, sure. I, let's just slightly finish this. So are you basically a Zen practitioner or are you more eclectic and you do some Zen and it's more your own path with? Away? I'd say after 2016, my, my practices are a little bit more hodgepodge because I don't, I don't, I don't typically, I, I wouldn't like identify with any one path at this point, but I do, um, I use sort of the practices as, as I find my body kind of needs whatever, whatever sort of, I use it more to like clean up and, and find new areas of my body to explore and stuff more than like trying to, to reach some sort of spiritual attainment. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Um, but your work has been incredibly powerful for me. Um, I've done at least one or two of your teleclasses. Oh, yeah. um, I've read, read and, and I almost went to a workshop that you did right before the pandemic. And I think you got sick. It was in San Francisco. And I think you got sick and so it got canceled. Um, but it's fine. It's lovely to finally like yes. sort of meet you. Um, I think what I wanted to the reason I, I thought it would be, aside from me just like loving your work and, and, and your um, your soul <laughs> so, uh, is I've the podcast, this literature podcast and, and my personal podcast, Loving This, uh, we've explored a lot of non-dual spirituality and we've We've touched on, you know, things like a lot of times in the deconstruction of people who have come from a lot of like Christian and more Western backgrounds, spiritually and religiously, um, things like the divine feminine are very new ideas okay. for some of us. So we've touched, we've like dipped our toes in some of those things on the podcast. But uh, you say things about like your work with the goddesses and the divine feminine has been radical and transformational for me. Um, and I just kind of wanted to introduce 
a lot of people who probably haven't done much work along along those lines haven't probably aren't even familiar with many of the goddesses um yeah. uh, and the divine feminine might be more of a like a an abstract possibility but not a whole lot of like direct experience with or, or work with yeah. uh, goddess yeah. so Maybe we could start. Could you just give us a little bit for those of you, those who aren't familiar with your work and what you've been doing for a lot of years now? Uh, could you kind of like tell us about about yourself a little bit and, and your spiritual history and what what your passion is spiritually for the world and your teachings? Yeah, uh, it's a long story. Let me just see if I can condense it. Yeah. So I I grew up in a secular humanist left wing literary milieu in uh, on the east coast i was a journalist for until i was a, about 27 28 then i i got involved in a western spiritual path which was if you know this word which was very integral in other words part of what they uh -huh. what they did was take a little bit from your mystical christianity a little bit from kabbalah a little bit from tibetan uh -huh. buddhism and it so it gave me a pretty good uh you know, background in, let's call it for people who were just normal, ambitious family people, you know, to suddenly find that the only thing they really cared about, uh, including often their wife and children, was pursuing the path of the heart. So, and I, I was very committed, dedicated to facilitating that process. I felt like it was very important. Uh, it, it was, I felt that it was what I was born for. Um, and so I stayed there for a long time. And then in the, around the, the turn of the century, uh, I, I began really longing for, I guess what you could call intellectual freedom and independence and realized that my spiritual growth ha had, was, was being truncated by having to teach and speak within a tradition. In other words, somewhat similar to what you shared with me earlier that you know, I, I really have come to believe that that radical adherence to a tradition, while very, very useful and helpful at certain stages in the path, at a certain point, you really do have to, if not leave, mm. you know, if the tradition is generous enough, you don't have to leave. But um, in most cases, you actually have to leave because, you know, your language has become constricted by, mm -hmm. you know, by, let's call it the dogma of the tradition, all traditions. You know, Buddhists speak Buddhist language, Hindus speak Hindu language, Christians mm -hmm. speak Christian language. So, uh, so I started, I left in 2002 and I began teaching independently. And at some point, just to get to the divine feminine part, um, my guru being a, was a Shaivite, meaning he, he called, meaning he called God Shiva. Uh, and he was very much, in the, but he was very much in the tantric tradition and in, in Tantra, the understanding about the divine and uh, this is not totally unique, but it's, it's pretty radically significant in Tantra. Uh, the understanding of the divine is that it is, it is one, ab one absolute, non-dual, transcendent and imminent awareness. And it has two aspects. The, the aspect of stillness, which in Tantra is called Shiva, 
and the aspect of dynamism, creativity, love, bliss uh, for manifestation, which is called Shakti. And the, the Shakti aspect, in, according to Tantra, is everything that is. You know, that, that, that the divine masculine, let's call it that. And, and um, let me just say, this, I'm saying this with total understanding that at the level of the absolute, there is no masculine, there is no feminine. That, you know, the divine masculine and divine feminine are ways that the sage is found to describe this in a way that makes sense to people who aren't in that state. So Shakti is very often identified with goddesses, uh, with the divine mother. And the interesting thing about Shakta traditions, Shakti, Shakti face traditions, is that the, the, the Shaiva traditions, the Vaishnava traditions are very much uh, very similar in this way to the Abrahamic religions. In other words, there's, there's one personal form of deity, one personal face of deity, and it's masculine. And it's, um, it's, quite, uh, it's quite insistent on, you know, on, even though Hinduism is quite, is universalist and acknowledges different traditions rather generously. The Shakta traditions, the traditions that call God mother or Devi or goddess, understand that the, the goddess has many, many faces. You know, she's one, and, and she's not different than the divine masculine. But within that one, there are many, many personalities, many, many functions. So hence, in, in the Indian Shakta tradition, there are dozens and dozens of goddesses. You know, there are local goddesses, there are big national goddesses with names like Durga and Lakshmi and, and Saraswati. Um, but they're all considered aspects of the one great feminine energy, which is everywhere, which is the root of everything, which manifests all forms, which lives in you as your awakened Kundalini energy, and uh, which you can pray to and get quite intimate with. So uh, at a one point, I had a kind of an awakening to the goddess, and it, it happened during a religious festival in India where I was actually giving a talk. And it was like, <coughs> I had this experience of the descent of, of ecstasy into my body. One of the characteristics of the divine feminine, certainly in the tantric tradition, and I suspect in other traditions, is her form is ecstasy. You know, it's, it's, it's if, we, if we think about religious traditions or spiritual traditions that front load the divine masculine, um, that I would say that the experience is of peace, it's of oneness, it's of love, both, both aspects of, of the divine are, are love, you know, but, but the ecstatic, uh, sparkling um, quality in reality that, that makes you realize that every particle of the world is juicy and gorgeous and pulsing with creativity and affection and tenderness seems to be the expression of the Shakta traditions. And it's in every tradition, it's, you know, many traditions don't speak the name, but, but they still have that component. Wow. 
And in my experience, for instance, in the Catholic and Episcopal, the sort of high church Christian traditions, that there's a particular quality in the, in the parts of the temple, that sorry, the parts of the church or the parts of the cathedral that are dedicated to the Virgin Mary, that, you know, that she does, she really does hold the Shakti in that tradition. And because it's not mine, I can't speak. Uh, you know, uh, definitively about it, but it's just something I've noticed that where there's ecstasy, there's a recognition of the presence of the Divine Mother. So in a certain way, her, that, that capacity for, um, I would call it, uh, for, you know, leaving your, coming out of your ordinary self, ecstatic means actually coming out of yourself, as you know, um, that that does seem to be very much related to the Divine Mother. And I think in the Greek uh, mystical traditions at Ephesus, it was probably the same thing. We don't know much about it because they didn't tell us what they were doing. But, you know, my my sense is that this these practices, the, the worship of goddess has is na native, natural, uh, built into human life. And, you know, there are lots of reasons why it was suppressed, um, which we won't go into, but the truth is it's unsuppressible because it's reality, oh. nature of reality. And, um, and just as we all come out of a woman, we all come out of goddess. It's the whole essence of Tantra or the, the Tantric, the metaphor that the Tantras provide is that, you know, is that, uh, is the model of the divine couple, which, which I know is a heteronormative model, but it's based on biology. But you know, when the masculine and the feminine come together, they make a child. When Shiva and Shakti come together, they a universe is born. So, so that so that, and there's a lot of implications to that uh, that view of reality, and um, so that's a little bit of an introduction to that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Beautiful introduction. Um, I'm interested in, uh, you know, Mary is, is often brought up as um, an aspect of the, the divine feminine. But what I what frustrates me, what has frustrated me in the Christian tradition is is they they don't deify her. They they she's not God. They let Jesus be God, but not Mary, and, and that seems a little unfair to me um <laughs> but there's also um there's the spirit i actually wonder if the if because i'm a little you know maybe it's a maybe i have some sentimentality towards my christian upbringing or see i like finding places where there's potential that untapped and i wonder i grew up particularly in, in more of a charismatic sort of pentecostal ecstatic expression of what we call Holy Spirit. Um, I think the Holy Spirit in the Christian tradition has all sorts of room for being seen as that sort of Shakti, divine feminine energy. And, and, and it's kind of the only place that I've seen in Christian circles at all that has anything resembling sort of that Kundalini energy, weird things happening in the body, weird like kind of ecstatic power sort of like erupting 
Um, do you have any thoughts about any of that? Oh no, I I hundred percent agree with you. Okay. I, I I would say that that Kundalini rising. Yeah, I mean Kundalini is it's it's part of our human equipment. You know, so and and part of the goal of religion, you know, it's not just maintaining the social order and getting everyone to be, you know, pious and under the control yeah. of priests. It's about awakening that energy and allowing that ecstatic expression to be present in people's lives. So I do, yeah, no, I think Pentecostal Christianity is very tinged and the, the teaching of the Holy Spirit is very much that. Um, and I, you know, there's a whole discussion we can have about patriarchy and, yeah. and why, and why Jesus. Why Mary? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, she's the only one. She's the only feminine force that, that Christianity has. You yeah, know? it's like we're reaching. We're like, <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. And, and you know, I, here's the thing. I had an experience once. You know, I, I'm sure like every other Western seeker, I've been Christian in lifetime, many, many lifetimes, because that's the path that <laughs> you know Westerners, what Westerners have, oh. or at least Westerners, some Westerners, there's also of course the the path of Judaism, which is seems to me to be fairly radically anti-feminine in many ways. Mm. Um, but I was reading a book about the, the modern apparitions of the Virgin Mary. And I came to this section about the Virgin of Guadalupe and which I'm sure you know that story. Uh, and I'm not gonna tell you if you don't, but it, the Virgin of Guadalupe, for those of you who don't know her is, she's really, she's, um, she is a cathedral near Mexico City, now in Mexico City, uh, which is probably the most famous shrine in the in, in Latin America, which is, you know, where people go for help for sucker to have miracles. It's an incredibly powerful shrine. And she's an incredibly powerful figure. And her her image is all over the southwestern United States. Um, so I'm reading this, and it's a, quite a moving story about how she how she first appeared to an Indian named, um, named Juan. And as I'm reading it, suddenly there's this shimmer in the air oh. and there's a being there. And, and she, I didn't, couldn't see her, but she began to speak to me from inside. And she, I, she said, I'm, I'm Mary, I'm here to be with you. I'll always be with you. I'm, you know, I, I'll, I'll give you anything you need. And I kind of freaked out. I was, I was in a different tradition, you know, and she was not. <laughs> I know this is so almost weird, but I was, I was like, wait a minute. Uh, I know it's it's really very funny, but and she was there for about two days, and she kept saying, "You can pray to me. You know, I'll be here for you." Uh, but that was actually that was one of my very seminal experiences in, in beginning to take refuge in the divine feminine. And so I just think, I think that these feminine figures are, they're all around us. They're, for those of us who are connected to the, to the divine feminine, they're, they're present for us the moment we look for them or you know, feel inspired by them. It's one of the great mysteries you know, I mean, I mean, why I, why I connect to goddess rather than some of the very beautiful masculine 
deity figures that are available. It's, I don't think it's just because I'm a woman. I think it's because there's a quality in the divine feminine that is, uh, is particular. Yeah. Yeah. Well, aside from robbing us of, um, you know, like robust feminine theology and with a, having patriarchy, having rob, robbed us of, of, of robust feminine theology, I think it's also robbed us of some practical, um, both like helpful containers and, and technologies for experiencing and understanding and channeling and, and operating <clears throat> safely and healthily within some of these experiences. Like for instance, you're, you're saying when you had this Kundalini awakening happen, um, you mentioned that there was some sort of <laughs> unusual and, and, and maybe like not advantageous circumstances that we didn't. And I've heard this from other people that like they've, they've had these experiences, they don't know where to put it because we're not, this is not part of our education in the West. And it's not part of our, if you have a Christian tradition, it's not found of like, what, what is this? We don't have names for it. We don't have practices for it. We don't have people that know what to do with it. Um, and so some people can like really have frightening um, experiences with like Kundalini and different energy awakening in their body. And do you have any, I would love to hear more about what that was like for you. If you have any thoughts, um, response to what I've said. Well, in my case, it was not, and my case is kind of classic. I didn't have one of those crazy Kundalini awakenings like mm -hmm. my guru had and like some people have, mm -hmm. but it, it was, the initial experience was that I was doing a lot of spiritual practice, actually a lot of Tibetan visualization practices, which I never could get right. I, they never, you know, there was, it was a lot of work and struggle. As soon as this connection happened, they began happening spontaneously. Mm. So the, you know, the, 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 um, the lights that I was supposed to be meditating on became real lights that I saw in my body. And the experience of bliss, which I literally had maybe experienced once or twice in my life since childhood became almost constant. Um, many, many profound positive changes began to happen. And then at a certain point, uh, and this is again, typical of Kundalini awakening, all my internal buried shadow and darkness mm. and pain and self, you know, unworthiness and anger and all these things started coming up to a degree that was overwhelming. And, uh, and it sort of went on like this, like a roller coaster, which is again, quite normal for a Kundalini awakening. And mine wasn't even that dramatic. I mean, I've known people who, you know, who are literally seeing demons and wow. you know, rolling around on the floor and, you know, having kind of um, very intense uh, sexuality. Mm -hmm. so, so mine was fairly mild, um, but you're right. And th this was in the seventies. I mean, there's a lot more information about Kundalini around now, if you know where to look. There was almost nothing except for a book by an Indian gentleman named Gopi Krishna about a, a, an awakening that he had, which had almost burned him alive from within. So, wow. so you know, reading it, you thought, oh my God, I'd never want this to happen to me. Mm. Um, but the, 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 I mean, there's some disagreement about the purpose of Kundalini. 
uh, and the effects of it and what it actually is. But in my tradition, the understanding is that Kundalini is the form of the primordial Shakti, the primordial creative energy at the heart of the universe, which takes seed inside a human body in a, in a Kundalini means coiled, in a, um, in, a, in a coiled form, which means that it's not available. And, and an awakening means that the, the unavailable Kundalini suddenly becomes available. And the tradition teaches that it's only when Kundalini is awakened. And this is why Pentecostal experiences are so significant. Hmm. It's when this energy is awakened that you can begin to have the experience of the subtle realms within yourself and within, hmm. you know, within, the, within the cosmos. Uh, and you know, in the yogic tradition, it's said that without the awakening of this energy, their enlightenment is impossible. Uh, and it does a lot of things, including bringing forth your skills and talents. It's, you know, um, changing the way you do relationships. It's a, it's a powerful, uh, powerfully overwhelming and, uh, and ultimately revolutionary um, force that, you know, that completely changes a human life. And in the process, stuff goes on that's scary and painful. And if you don't have, it's, it's, it's very, very helpful. And I think important that you have information, um, that you have teachings that help you explain it. That there are people that you can go to who answer your questions, who really understand Kundalini and have been through the process. Uh, and my guru um, was one such person. He had, a, he had an incredibly intense Kundalini sadhana, and there was nothing he didn't know about it. So when you thought you were freaking out, he could look at you and laugh and say, no, no, this is just a phase. So um, I, uh, I mean, once you know about Kundalini, once you, can begin, once you begin to get a glimpse of what, what, of what it does in your life, what she does in your life, um, you realize that it is it is rebirth, it is it is being born again, and you know I I'm not a devotee of Jesus, so I don't I don't really have any personal experience of what it is to be born again in Christ, but I I I think it's very connected, you know I I mean awakening is awakening, and part of part of what's significant about the Eastern traditions of awakening is that they are non-dual. So the, the aim of these traditions is to get you to recognize that you're not different than God. And a dualistic tradition like conventional Christianity, of course, does not accept that as anything but blasphemy. So there's a limit to how far that awakening can take you because there's no guidance uh, about what happens at the upper reaches, even though, of course, there have been great East, uh, Christian mystics who, right. you know, who found it. Um, so I, I, and that's all in, in, in aid of saying that the teaching, the way it's framed, the way it's understood is all important for, you know, yeah. for personal relationship to it. Yeah, I feel I didn't have and still don't have really anybody to, I, I'm, I have, I think like the height of the strangeness in my body, the Kundalini energy stuff that was happening 
it seems like it's calmed down from what it was a few years ago. For a while, I was like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> like these weird buzzings and crazy bliss. And then like a sharp shooting headache that turned into like, ah, and then like a, a buzzing at the top of my head that finally like blew open. Like all this weird, I'm like, what the, what is happening? And there's no, there's no uh, catechism that I'm aware of or, you know, like Christian. No, there's not. Book section. <laughs> I'm sure there must be. I'm sure people, I'm sure there are actually. Yeah. There's so much being written now. Yeah, maybe. The Christian background. But, but yeah, I know. It's, it's, I mean, until, I think my, my guru's book, his, he wrote a book called Play of Consciousness, which is his spiritual autobiography. It was the first book, I believe, ever to really explain this in ways that, um, that, that are helpful. I mean, there was Gopi Krishna's book, but it's, it's not really that helpful. Uh, and then since then, you know, there have been, there are many books. Um, and if you want a reading list, I can give you one. Sure. <laughs> I don't, I don't even know that I, some of it I like not understanding too much. Like I, I feel like I have a tendency and part of it's probably that patriarchal Western Christian upbringing. So it might just be my own personality, but um, trying to sort of domesticate these things into ideas and, and controllable thoughts. And so there's something I like about the mystery of it. Like yeah. right now I feel my left foot. There's something that's for this whole year with my left foot that I just feel a lot of crazy energy in my left foot a lot. I don't really know what that means. I kind of like that I don't. Maybe, maybe that'll. Maybe I should. Yeah, you, don't, you don't have to know what it means. I know there's a tendency in Western, for Westerners, and I, you know, Indians are just as rational, actually, as Westerners, especially those who've been to college. Um, but there's a tendency to want to explain everything. So, I'm someone that people consult about their Kundalini experiences. So, I get a lot of phone calls. What is this thing? Why is my that's my eye twitching. <laughs> what does it mean that my head goes into this certain position? You know, yeah. Because we always want to know that it's it's good. It's not. Yeah. Do I need to see a doctor? Is maybe what they're lower. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there, I'm curious of, do, do you see it as just a spontaneous thing that happened? But I guess you said your guru could awaken that. Do you, like, people who are interested in what we're saying but maybe have no idea what we're talking about or are interested in awakening their kundalini do you what do you say to, to people who are curious about it um well there's there's several ways in which kundalini is awakened one is through a a, a particular mantra a mantra that has been given to you through a lineage in which kundalini awakening happens uh, the most reliable way to experience a kundalini awakening is through a transmission from someone whose kundalini is already awake. And one of the reasons why that's, uh, why that's, I would say, the best way is because hopefully it will come along with some instruction. Mm. So that, and the person who awakens your, your shakti can tell you what's, you know, can, is someone you can ask some questions to. Mm. Now, that said, I know a lot of people whose kundalini has awakened spontaneously during a massage or mm. during sex 
or standing in the redwoods, you know? So, mm -hmm. and, and because that awakening doesn't, doesn't come from a particular person, doesn't belong to a particular person, it's a force in the universe, you know? So it can happen spontaneously and, you know, often does. Uh, and then the issue is, okay, now what? You know, and how do you understand it and how do you work with it? Um, Gopi Krishna was a, was a meditator, which is, of course, one of the ways Kundalini is awakened is in deep meditation. Um, and in the Hatha Yoga traditions, there are a lot of exercises that you do, um, bringing a Kundalini up from the base of the spine to the heart. So, and they often will awaken Kundalini. But um, it's, for instance, in Pentecost, in Pentecostal Christianity, uh, you go to church, the spirit is strong, you're seized by the spirit, you have an ecstatic morning, and then it's done, it's over. Mm -hmm. Whereas, which is what I would call a partial Kundalini rising. Mm -hmm. And what you want for real transformation is a, is a permanent and I would say steady and hopefully slow development of the energy in your body. Because what it can do, what it will do is actually remake your cellular structure. And this is better, it's better if this happens a little bit at a time rather than all at once. Mm. You know, so all those, those experiences you're talking about, they're part of that cellular transformation and it sounds like none of them are strong enough to just derail you. I mean, you're mm -hmm. living your life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we want to live our lives. We don't want to exceed It's not a force that, you know, is going to take us over and make it impossible to go to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I have a friend who did have, like, she had a Kundalini awakening during a, a, a yoga class or something that she was doing. And she literally didn't, like, she couldn't, she got to the street, she didn't really quite know how to cross the street because everything was gone. She was like, I don't know, like, there was, and she kind of got terrified, her, her nervous system got overloaded, she, like, didn't know how to operate. Yeah, and that's, um, that's that happens. Yeah. And uh, it's why it's good to have information. Yeah. Well, I would say to anyone who's interested in Kundalini, um, there are some good books on the subject. Uh, and... Um, one of the good ones, because it's kind of sane, is, is called Awakening Kundalini by Lawrence Edwards, who's a Jungian psychologist. And he explains it in the way that I've, I've he's, he's a student of my teacher. Uh, and I, I do think, I do believe that the way my teacher's lineage explains Kundalini is, is the most helpful and probably the closest to the truth. Um, and that, that book can kind of uh, reassure you and gives, gives information. There's another book uh, by a woman named Bonnie Greenwell, which in, she talks about, she writes it, it was from her doctoral thesis. I can't remember the name of it, it's the name has changed. It's Kundalini is in the title, but Greenwell is her name. And uh, she, she gives a lot of examples of writings that different people have done, which, which uh, kind of explain Kundalini from many different points of view. And that's a very helpful book. And she also, she also has long lists of experiences that people have, mm. which again is very helpful. It's very good to know that what's happening to you is not, is not uh, crazy.
Do you think that in in the tantric and, and Shaivite traditions that that when you're talking about something like Kundalini, I don't know if I'm seeing this with like romanticized Western eyes or if it really isn't as moralized. I think part of the problem that happens in Pentecostal Christianity, for instance, is the people that get the gifts or whatever, or they have the experiences. The whole tradition tends to, to be sort of a always moralized, always like, are you on the good side with God? And how, how on God's side are you? And those are going to be rewards when you finally get to the afterlife. It's very rewards and punishment based. And okay. so people can, even talking about this, I imagine there are some people listening to this that might be triggered of old to talk about like, oh, you don't speak in tongues? Okay, you're kind of like a lesser Christian. But in my in my readings and understanding of these other traditions, uh, it's not moralized in the same way. It's not like you're a better person if you've had a spiritual awakening or, or, or a, a, you know, a Kundalini awakening or any of these things. Um, do you find that to be true? Like, is because I, I, I'm hearing some of this through some of those other ears, and I kind of want to be like, nip any of that in the bud. Like, this is not you're a better person, or like you're higher up on some sort of scale. You know what I mean? No, it's it's not. I mean, I I would say, again, um, I would say that uh, if you don't mind my bringing up the doctrine of karma and reincarnation, mm-hmm. I would say that people who have very strong Kundalini awakenings and strong spiritual experiences in general have some practice behind them. You know, maybe in this life, maybe in another life, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are good people, mm. you know, or, you know, I, I mean, basic goodness is in everybody, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're moral in a conventional sense. Very often the yogis, the famous yogis of the Eastern traditions are deeply eccentric, mm. very strange. <laughs> And, and often, you know, do things that nobody can understand. Uh, and that, you know, that, that these days we think of as, as immoral or bad or abusive or, you know, sexually transgressive. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not making judgments on any of it, um, but, but it's definitely not a moralistic tradition. And it exists side by side in both Hinduism and Buddhism. You know, there is there is a version of Hinduism and Buddhism that we could call the conventional, you know, it's, it's very, the, the morality is very similar to the Abrahamic religions. You know, there it's the, the ethics and the way a good person behaves are part of all religious traditions. They're very important in religious traditions. The Kundalini tantric uh, inner experience is just, it's like outside of, it's outside of morality. It's not that it's not, not moral. It's just has nothing to do with it. It's what happens when, when the inner world opens and things start happening in your consciousness that, that there's often no precedent for in conventional life, including in conventional religious life. So, I mean, I, I'll just give you a wild example. I mean, a little example from my recent experience. I was recently talking to a guy who's a He's a very gifted and now becoming very famous psychic and a healer. And uh, he's, he really is a very, very gifted healer. People have amazing experiences. And of course, in the Christian tradition and in many other religious traditions, the capacity for healing is a sign of saintliness. You know, it's considered to be something that only happens to people who 
are really good people and very close to God. This just happened to him. He woke up one morning. He had this healing gift. And he was saying to me, I'm not even a good person. You know, <laughs> I've had a totally raggedy life. I used to be a cocaine dealer. And how did this <laughs> <laughs> I know it's crazy. That's amazing. But it's 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 happens like that. Yeah. Um when when you talk about so these sort of new experiences that can happen and these awakenings or uh, especially from people who have come from you know sort of a puritanical protestant abstract beliefism that doesn't probably have a lot of room for some of these ideas that you're talking about the magic and these wild psychic healing you know whatever synchronicities miracles um and then on the other hand sometimes what i've noticed being in los angeles is you have a, some people whose imagination has opened up right and and had um either experiences or beliefs about other dimensional beings and and energies and crystals and deities and whatever angels and demons and um and it can sometimes turn into still a very dualistic and in a way moralized still um, and kind of still hierarchical. Like I'm trying to get the good energies in and keep the bad energies out and it can become very superstitious. Um, so sort of in this woo-woo pole that is, it's like kind of maybe running away from or reaction to this other sort of dead abstract yes. beliefism based thing. Um, I'm curious about how, is there a better way to engage our imaginations that doesn't get our better as a, even that word that's troublesome, but is there, is there a more helpful way of engaging our imaginations of participating in the wonder and the magic of life and however it shows up without getting kind of pulled into those poles, those dualistic poles that can be such a distraction and, and end up being shame causing and violence causing even. Yeah, they are. I, I know. Yeah. I mean, the, the new age world is full of all kinds of craziness. Um, Ken Wilber has a very interesting set of distinctions. He's, he's really good at distinctions. Ken is a philosopher for those of you. Know. <laughs> um, he says that, that we can divide our experience of religion and consciousness expansion into three, three levels. There's pre-rational, which is, that, which is, you know, you're talking about modern people who are having pre-rational understandings about the world. Then there's rational, you know, which is okay, if this isn't concrete, if we can't prove it scientifically, it's not worth paying attention to. And then there's transrational, which in which you you have a grounding in in rationality, in, you know, in if not in science, in the, the contemporary scientific understanding of of what physical reality is. But you're you're having experiences of that which transcends the rational, and it's very interesting to look at one's own experience and say, okay, is, am I coming from a pre-rational place, or am I coming from a trans-rational place? You know, I mean, astrology, for example, which which I um I have found to be quite uh, helpful and useful and and accurate sometimes, not always. You know, it's but to believe that astrology is going to tell you exactly what 
you're like and what is going to happen in your life is completely pre-rational, even though mm. there's a lot of there's a lot of wisdom in as in astrology. It's you know, it's not a it's not a completely woo-woo tradition. Um, but you have to approach it from a transrational understanding, you know, and which I think, as you say, it's a more non-dual understanding. And I and I I think that we don't get to non-dual in an authentic way unless we move through the process. And you know, we all start out as superstitious, magical thinking beings. Mm. And we all need magic. I, I don't care who you are. If you don't have magic, if you don't have mm. something to appeal to that's, you know, that's that's not subject to the laws of physics, then your life is your life is going to be at best dry. You know, there's going to be because we long for that. And and so we often in our search for magic, we go through that sort of superstitious pre-rational period, then we lose faith, which I think happens to, mm -hmm. you know, many, many religious people as they move out of the magical thinking. Yeah, which is probably where like a bulk of this audience that listens to this podcast would probably be in that zone. I think so. Or the rational space, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. And but then what, what, what's the, sorry, I interrupted you. No, 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 I, I, I get it. So how do you, I, I, you know, it's a really good question because my own experience is that it's been a very long process. You know, I started out hyper-rational um, and went very much into a, magic, into a magical thinking, pre-rational state in devotion to my guru and my tradition, which has a lot of that in it. And then I, then I came out of it. And I came out of it with my rational understanding intact but with a lot of experience of, of realms of reality that, uh, that, that utterly transcend the rational. Mm -hmm. And, and I, don't, I don't know how you do it except by going through the process. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, I think people today are, uh, conditions today are such that we can move through a lot of layers and levels of consciousness much more quickly than people used to do in, in the old days. But I just don't think you can, I don't think you can jump from rational to transrational without revisiting the pre-rational. Oh, interesting. And, uh, and, and that's, that's because the pre-rational is embedded in us. You know, we, we have that and it's, and there's a connection. So, and because the rational, as they say, Re disenchants the world, you know. So when we, the world begins to be re-enchanted, it's very natural to to revert to those um, to really, you know, what we call could call magical thinking, you know, to to see synchronicities and and begin to believe in signs and you know all those things. Uh, and then we have to learn to navigate. So there, I don't think there's any substitute for learning how to navigate your, your uh, spiritual experience. So could you, what's, what's the difference between, a, um, if you take astrology, yeah. what's, what would be a pre-rational way of engaging with that or a trans-rational way of engaging with that? Well, a classic pre-rational approach to astrology is Mercury turns retrograde 
everyone you know calls you up and says, oh my God, Mercury retrograde, everything. <laughs> it's because of Mercury retrograde. I mean, that, that's kind of typical. Uh-huh. You know, in other words, you, you, know, you, you read a local astrology column and, and you, you see that there's something intense happening in the, in the cosmos and you become terrified and, uh-huh. you know, and, and, uh, and then there's an, what I would call the, the transrational way of looking at astrology is to realize that what astrological uh, planetary movements do is they, they're, uh, they kind of look, let's see what's the right word. They, they particularize and personify movements of energy in the universe. You know, so, and I think we all know that they're, they're just times. I mean, we're in one now. Whoops. Um, you know, where <laughs> we just call them hard times. There's, there's some very difficult energies moving, moving in that you can see them in pretty much every sphere of life. And, and there are also some pretty, some pretty great transformative energies. So astrology will, will give explanations for, you know, for why, there's, why we're having such a hard time, why there's so much craziness in society. There are actually, but they're not gonna, they're, they're like mirrors of, hmm. of energies that, uh, that have nothing to do with anything, you know, anything that we can see. It's and uh, and if you understand, you know, from a physics point of view, that that this universe is made of energy, and that there's constant, you know, that if you if you get chaos theory, you you see that the under underpinnings of pretty much everything that goes on in this world is energetic, and that that energy is it is actually kind of it's manipulatable, you know, you you actually can work with energies such that you can turn difficult energies to your advantage in if you know how to work with them, but you can't do it from a pre-rational point of view. Interesting. Yeah. It almost sounds like pre-rational, you're, you're kind of being- um, You're a victim. A victim, disempowered by the you're a, Or you're like a manipulative magician. I mean, you know, there's mm. people who are very gifted and energetic mm. okay. who, who don't, who use it for, uh, for purposes that, one wouldn't necessarily want to um, want to approve of, you know that. But so transrational, I would say, to be in the transrational sphere, I do think you have to have seen your own ego, and the difference between your true self and your ego. Mm-hmm. And if you're if you're living from ego, from personal, from personal wants and desires then everything that you come across is going to be used in the service of the ego, either to, to aggrandize yourself or to beat yourself up. But, right. um, but it's not going to be true. You know, you have to have some freedom from ego, from the, from the delusion of, of your empirical self as your true self in order for, you know, in order to really move in the realms of energy and spirit in a useful way. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. Um, do you have time for maybe one more question? Sure. Are you, are you getting tired? You okay? Yeah, I'm not sure. Okay. Um, thank you, by the way. This is also beautiful. It's such a pleasure hearing from you. Well, it's totally fun. And this is, this is my favorite kind of conversation, just ranging over 
the mysteries of the inner world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just kind of wanted. To, I know you can go so deep on any one of these subjects. You take, you just go into Durga and you take hours and go into everything about her. I know that I love that about your work, but I, I just kind of wanted to give people sort of a sampling of, of you and your work, and and just kind of and some of my own curiosities as well about um, how some of these things translate to a more Western world, because that's who listens to me, usually. <laughs> the people that are more in the Western world, I sometimes feel like kind of a translator mm. um, between worlds. Um, <clears throat> okay, so. I'm curious. I guess we kind of did talk about sort of the synchronicities and miracles and, and things like that in this last conversation. Um, but even if, if we take, think about thinking from like a, a transrational <laughs> um, place where the question I'm about to ask is something I've been experiencing occasionally recently that I'm kind of curious about. Um, and maybe this has something to do with Kundalini or with what, but I've found that sort of the margin for for ego almost like is getting smaller and smaller or like if i if i don't if i don't really dial into this moment and and really kind of ground in and surrender and keep an eye on the ego the suffering it can like it's not just like i start getting kind of anxious or so it can be like immediately like oh my god like a like a tidal wave of suffering if yeah. i don't fully surrender into this moment do, do you know what i mean by this totally totally is this a normal thing <laughs> now i'm just now i'm just getting free like spiritual teaching from you yeah it's a normal thing it i mean the thing is that once you have a sense of what it is to be to be identifying with your your let's call it the higher self your you know your your witness self the 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 awareness self then you have a very clear recognition of what it's like mm -hmm. to be out of that right and the truth is that we suffer our whole lives because of the anxiety and the fear and the you know the the nagging desires and ambitions that are part of the ego's attempt to get you know to feel real and and often spiritual life you know, especially if you if you meditate regularly, you know, you can you start to feel what it's like to be at least momentarily ever have an hour free of that. And and you realize you don't have that anxiety, you don't have that stress. And but mostly we can't hang on to it, you know, because 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 it's you know, those the ego is layered into our body, it's in our tensions, it's in our dreams. So part of the of what I consider the um, the gift of spiritual life is that you begin to have more and more of a sense of how your misunderstanding of who you are creates the suffering in your life. And, and that, that sometimes desperate desire to free yourself of suffering is, is really the spurs that, you know, that the universe puts into us to keep us moving towards a, you know, towards a more expanded awareness of who we are and what, what the world is. 
It's yeah, I, and I guess that's sort of the the spurs is what I what I was curious about and how it was related to it, like a transrational or the what it feels. It doesn't just because feel, it's not that suffering comes on if I really get lost in like you know I've forgotten who I am for a few days or something like if it, it's it's like the 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 roads getting like narrower and narrower. Yeah, <laughs> it's like doing that. So it feels like there's like there's some sort of energy or guiding something that's like, no, this is where we're going. And you, you can't veer at all. Yeah. And you're very fortunate that that's the case, by the way. You know, one of the ways I, I have found it's really helpful to look at when suffering arises, it's a Dharma bell. You know, it's mm. OK, it's asking you to look at what am I thinking? You know, what feelings am I trying to suppress? You know, what, what, what's going on in here that's triggering this suffering? And, you know, so it, it gets you to do some self-inquiry and, um, mm. and, you know, get back to yourself in whatever way you can. Mm. Hopefully not in a, you know, not in a anxious, freaked out, oh my God, I've got to get rid of that energy way. Because we all go through that too. Um, but it's like, okay, how, have I, how, have I how am I leaving the path right now? And, and even though, you know, because we all have these patterns that, that are, that we've had forever, perhaps, or at least certainly since childhood, that once they get triggered, they, they have their own life. You almost have to go through the process. You know, if, when, when your core anxiety gets triggered, you can do all the deep breathing that you want, but it's going to take a little while for it to calm down. But in that process, you get to look at, okay, what does anxiety feel like in my body? You know, how can I create some space around it? What is, you know, what happens if I relax my belly? What happens if I breathe? And, and what triggered it? And what, what thoughts of mine tend to trigger this? And that kind of inquiry, it makes you more and more the co-author of your life instead of being, you know, instead of being kind of victimized by your unconscious patterns and, mm. and un, unseen desires and fears. So I think it's very fortunate that, that you're having this experience that you can't- yeah, who, who is it? Is this Kali Love? What's that? Who does that? <laughs> yes. Yes. It's, it's tough love. Yeah. Yeah. This is like, keep your eyes on the road. Like, right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and after a while, you don't need that because yeah. you become your own, your own monitor. You, you know, you. It's like the signal becomes faster, hmm. and uh, I think that's one of the ways we know we're progressing in certain areas. Hmm. But it's a, it's a path. Like, I mean, it's a, it's a road. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sally. Thank you, Michael. Uh, May all things be good for you and all of you. Well. in this crazy time may we may we live through it and become higher better kinder and wiser as we navigate this world amen <laughs> well thank you for listening to this podcast everybody if you enjoyed that i would highly suggest you go to sallykempton.com 
and find more of Sally's work. Her work is not just information. She, she writes beautifully, yes, and, and teaches very effectively, but there's something about Sally that comes with a, that transmission that she was talking about. Really just suggests that you look into that if you felt any resonance with her. Thank you all for listening. Um, love to invite you to join us on Patreon if you don't already. If you'd like to support the show and have more made, we'd love to, to start doing more again. We've been on a kind of a break for a while, um, trying to regather resources and figure out how to, how to keep making the show. But if it means something to you, we would love your support. Um, but even just you listening, we are grateful. Much love. Thank you.